0: Don't you wish your life came with a warning app?
1: That dog does not want to be petted.
0: (laughs) Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression from the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal. I'm Jerry Baker, editor at large of the Journal. If you're not already a subscriber, please do sign up at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you do you're listening. This week, do the Democrats have a Joe Biden problem? The last week's headlines have been dominated by renewed doubts about the president's advanced age and his fitness for the job, even as he asks Americans to give him another four years in the White House. Special counsel Robert Hur last week expressed in unforgiving black and white what many Americans have long thought. Declining to prosecute Biden over his handling of classified documents, he said, memorably, if we can put it that way, that the president was a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Democrats reacted with fury, accusing her of a political hit job, insisting Biden is as sharp as a tack, and saying Donald Trump also frequently shows evidence of cognitive weakness. The Democrats could also take some encouraging news this week when the party managed to flip a House seat vacated by disgraced former GOP congressman George Santos in a special election in New York. So, they say, things are on track, but the evidence of Biden's frailties is is adding up. At the very press conference he himself called to rebut the allegations that his memory was failing, he again managed to mix up the identity of a foreign leader, calling Abdel el-Sisi the Egyptian president, the president of Mexico. A poll last week indicated that more than 80% of Americans think he's too old for the job. The end of a second term, Joe Biden would be 86 years old. But even if his age is deemed a liability, what could the party do less than nine months away from the election? He can't be dislodged without an unholy political mess. And even if he steps down, the party would have a serious challenge finding an electorally effective replacement. All this, of course, as whoever is president after November faces an increasingly complex and daunting set of global challenges with the U.S. confronting threats to its interests in every major theater around the world. So what does all this mean for this year's election and beyond? With me to talk about all this this week is political commentator and scholar Marie Half. Half served in the Obama administration at the State Department, where, among other roles, she was an advisor to John Kerry and acting spokesperson. Before that, she worked as an analyst at the CIA specializing in the Middle East. And Last month, she was appointed as the executive director of Perry World House at the University of Pennsylvania, an academic institution whose focus is on developing policy to tackle global problems. Marie Half joins me now. Marie, thanks very much for joining Free Expression.
1: I'm happy to be here today. Thank you for having me.
0: So let's start with Joe Biden. There's been a lot of talk about his fitness for office, given what we've seen in the last week and the report of the special counsel. Let me just put it this way, Maria, if I can ask you this question, because it's not so much about even about Joe Biden's current fitness for office from what we see of him, but put yourself in a position in three or four years time deep into a second Biden administration, if that happens. Are the Democrats really able to convince the American people that an 84, 85-year-old Joe Biden with many of the cognitive challenges they see now that is, he's really going to be able to continue to do this job as we expect him to do the job in another three or four years' time?
1: Well, a lot of Democrats are thinking about that question right now, Jerry. And look, that's the job of a campaign. I've worked on presidential campaigns. They are very focused on this issue. I think they believe that if they can get him out there more maybe not in big uh, speeches where he's talking from a teleprompter, but one-on-one, right? Retail politics, that's where Joe Biden really shines. They can get him out there more with voters. The people will start to see that, yes, he's older. And look, I don't think they should pretend like behind the scenes he's running marathons. Sometimes they do that, and I think that's too cute by half. But then when they get him out there with voters, when they see him one-on-one, And in comparison to his opponent, who is also not a spring chicken and who has significant cognitive challenges when he's out there speaking, that the age issue will sort of become a wash, that they're both old, they both misspeak sometimes. And so let's focus on issues and record, competency and not on age. That, I think, is where the Biden team feels comfortable. And if that's the argument, Jerry... I feel good on supporting Joe Biden and feeling like he will win.
0: Well, that's exactly that's where one would come directly then to you. That I understand. I agree. That's the Democrats' approach. But the problem, especially with the Trump comparison, is yeah, it's just reflected in opinion polls, right? Again, depending on who you ask and how you measure it, but. Very large number of Americans say, at minimum, they have grave doubts about Joe Biden's ability to do the job and especially ability to do another four years. You know, for whatever reason, and I hear you about Donald Trump's misspeaks uh, from time to time too, whatever problems Donald Trump has, we can both agree that they are many. That isn't the perception, I think, of him by the public. Are Democrats really going to be able to make that case? I mean, does it convince you? Do you think Joe Biden is up to the job and, you know, that there's no fundamental difference in their cognitive ability between him and Donald Trump?
1: Well, I absolutely think that Joe Biden is up to the job without reservation. And that is not something I say because I'm a Democrat. I think that there are differences with Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump is actually cognitively much worse off than Joe Biden. Does Joe Biden sometimes misspeak? Absolutely. And look, Democrats should be honest with themselves that people are worried about this. This idea that he's Just as fit as he was 20 years ago. And we need to be more honest with ourselves. And I think the campaign would be smart to do that and to not just joke about it. You know, Biden loves to make jokes about it. I think they need to be a little more serious in addressing it. But I do think Donald Trump, not just he messes up Nancy Pelosi and Nikki Haley, but it's bigger than that, right? There are bigger cognitive issues. You are absolutely right that it's not breaking through about Trump and the way it is with Biden. You are right about that. My hope is that the Biden campaign, if they are worth anything that they're getting paid, will make that case. Blanket TV and Internet with ads. And we'll, that is their job to make that case, Jerry.
0: But you're right. This image that we are told that, you know, well, you may see the president in public, but behind the scenes, he's, you know, He's sort of reciting whole passages of Herodotus in the original (laughs) Greek and bench pressing 200 pounds and doing, uh, you know, complex mathematical equations. It it doesn't really ring true, does it? That's something, as you kind of say, that something they probably would be advised to drop.
1: I think that's right. I think that it just doesn't ring true. And they should be honest about it. But I do think getting him out there more in settings in which he thrives would be important. He does not do great in a press conference in the White House with a teleprompter and then going back and forth with reporters. I mean, you heard him last week uh, or in the comments recently after the special counsel report. I would argue that was not a net positive for him. Some people disagree with me. But, you know, when he's out there on the campaign trail, going to the diners, meeting donors, doing events with, you know, when he was down in South Carolina, it didn't get a lot of coverage before the primary going to black barber shops and meeting people where they are he's really good at that that's his bread and butter he needs to do more of that
0: every president obviously is vulnerable and older presidents are you know more vulnerable than younger presidents and that's why we have presidential succession and particularly why we have the vice presidency. And I'm wondering, Marie, whether or not you think the vice presidency is actually contributing to Biden's problems. My colleague, Bill McGurn, wrote a good column in the Journal this week saying, actually, Kamala Harris was the best pick that Joe Biden's ever made for himself because people are so terrified that, uh, you know, he can't possibly step aside because they don't like the idea of a Kamala Harris presidency. But for the Democrats more broadly, how much faith, again, do you have and do you think Democrats have that should something happen to Joe Biden, and again, at that age, it's possible, that she is absolutely well-equipped and best-equipped to step up to do the big job?
1: It's certainly something people talk about. I am completely confident that if the vice president were to become president, she could not only do the job, but do it well. She's a very competent leader. She, I think, has gotten a lot of heat some warranted, I think some overblown with some of her public appearances and how she does there. But I think that from a policy perspective, she would absolutely follow through on what Democrats care about. And I think that she could lead the country well. I also think that electorally, you know, some people say, well, she she doesn't help him necessarily in the election. When you see her out there on the campaign trail with communities of color, with women, with constituencies that the Democrats will need to come out to vote for them in states that matter, she is probably the best person in the administration to reach those audiences. So I don't know that nationally, I mean, look, her approval rating is higher than Joe Biden's, though, we should note, but she does really well with some core parts of the democratic voting base that we really need. And I think you will see her out there talking about women's health care, talking about freedom, talking about choice. Some of these issues we know will be key in this election. She's really good on. And I think you'll see her more in that role.
0: Wait, did you say her approval ratings are higher than Joe Biden's? Depends
1: on which one you look at. But in many of them, they are higher. I mean, his is pretty low. Donald Trump's is pretty low. Approval ratings, it feels like everyone just hates politicians now. They're always going to be net negatives. But in some, depending on what you look at, they're often higher than his.
0: Let me just ask you straight out, do you think there's any chance at all that Joe Biden would voluntarily step aside between now and presumably the convention to allow reasonably orderly process of selecting a success? Do you think there's any chance whatsoever?
1: I don't. Look, never say never, I guess, in our business. I think absent some catastrophic health issue, I don't. I wonder if Democrats are rethinking their decision to hold our convention this year in Chicago. Some of that history is not amazing when we talk about messy conventions. But you know, at this point, delegates have been awarded and you and I have lived through delegate fights and brokered conventions and all of that. I don't think there is. Look, a lot of Democrats are thinking about who the next party leaders are and should be, myself included. But I think that we are going to be represented by Joe Biden in this election, absent some sort of catastrophic event. That's just my view.
0: Okay, so let me just completely set that aside for a second. I take your point, and I'm sure you're right. You know, you're very smart. You know democratic politics well. But let's ask you to play the hypothetical for a moment. God forbid there may be some health event. But just supposing somehow he's prevailed on to step aside, and and we do go to a convention, and we do have an open convention. Do you think the Democrats have a strong field there of potential successes? And, And I suppose the most important question of all is, could Kamala Harris be denied The presidency, given that vice presidents who seek the party's nomination of generally speaking over the last 30 or 40 years have won it, and given her unique status as the first woman of color to hold the position, is it really imaginable in the current Democratic Party that should it happen, and again, we're playing hypotheticals, that Kamala Harris would not be the nominee?
1: In this hypothetical, I actually think she probably would not be the nominee. That's just my sense when I talk to other Democrats. I think she would certainly be one of the people in the conversation. But when I talk to Democrats, they're really focused on a handful of governors. And I'll start with Gavin Newsom in California. You know, the debate he had on Fox with Ron DeSantis included in this, but he's really emerged, I think, as a national figure in a way that is going beyond California politics, which, as you know, have their own brand of character. So I think you look at someone like Gavin Newsom, Gretchen Whitmer. My personal favorite future Democratic president is Governor Wes Moore of Maryland. I think he is absolutely one to watch. If I had to put my name in for someone today that would come next, it would be him. Oh, interesting. I think people, and I'm happy to talk more about Wes Moore. Yeah. Why do you say that? Well, I think first, my generation tends to fall into the trap of trying to find the next Obama, right? Great orator, really inspiring, all of that. That's not what this is. You know, he has a really interesting background, grew up quite disadvantaged, joined the military, served overseas in uniform, academic credentials, really thoughtful and intellectual, but a really good executive and very inspiring. When he ran for governor of Maryland, went to places in Maryland, Democrats had not gone for decades. He won more votes, I think, than any other governor in Maryland history or any other Democratic governor in Maryland history. He expanded the coalition by not just talking about lofty ideals that he studied when he was a Rhodes Scholar or things he learned when he served overseas in uniform, but he made communities better. He's focused on community policing. He understands crime in Baltimore is an issue. He's focused on rebuilding communities, economic opportunity. They're having an economic boom in Maryland right now. He's putting people back to work and he's investing in the state in a way that many people eyeing higher office, which I guess he might be, wouldn't be doing. So, look, I think he's great on the stump. He's thoughtful. He's great. I'm really high on Wes Moore right now.
0: You make a very strong case. And politically, as far as I understand it, he's, he's sort of sort of center left. Would that mean he would struggle in a primary or would there be a more of a, a, you know, a further left candidate that Democrats might want in a primary? Or if we're talking about this hypothetical brokered convention. Are his political credentials strong enough, do you think, to go down well enough with Democrats? I
1: mean, look, I haven't done a full oppo doc on him yet. No, but no, 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 I, I understand. Think, I think they are. You know, I think they are. I also should have mentioned someone like Josh Shapiro, the governor of yep. Pennsylvania. We have some good governors, but someone yep. like Westmore. You no, know, I think the Democratic Party, by and large, especially delegates at a convention, number one priority is to be Donald Trump. And I think many Democrats are practical and realistic enough to understand, you know, we nominated Joe Biden in 2020. We nominated Hillary Clinton in 2016, right? For all the talk of the strength of the progressive part of our party, we keep nominating moderates. And I think that someone like Westmore certainly has progressive credentials, but is seen as someone who can bring, particularly independents and disaffected Republicans into a Democratic coalition. And I think, again, looking forward, whenever the person emerges after Joe Biden, whenever that is in our lifetimes, I think that's the road we're going to stay on. It's not going to be going to the really far left. I just don't believe that. I know it's a powerful part of the party, but I don't see it being borne out.
0: Okay. We look forward to um, Secretary of State Marie Half in a future Westmore Moore <laughs> administration uh, by the sound of things. We're going to take a break there. But when I come back, we'll have more with Marie Half talking about Joe Biden and the challenges that he faces. both before. And potentially after the presidential election. Stay with us. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog
1: does not want to be petted.
0: <laughs> well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion-Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. I'm back with political commentator, former Obama administration official, Marie Half. We're talking about the challenges that Joe Biden faces. So let's move on to the broader politics of 2024 and also some of these key policy challenges which you've spent a lot of time thinking about, particularly in the Middle East and elsewhere. And let me put that in the frame of the Democratic Party right now. We are seeing this really fascinating development in the Democratic Party over the last six months or so, which is this very strong kind of grassroots support for the Palestinian cause. This is, I think, a relatively new phenomenon in American politics. There's protests in favor of the Palestinians. We've seen members of of the Biden administration supposedly being very unhappy with the very strong pro-Israel support. It does seem to be a an ideological, but also to some extent even an intergenerational clash going on within the Democratic Party. Now, there's all sorts of talk. Biden seems to be on the one hand while he continues to express strong support for Israel and, of course, asks for continuing military support for Israel in terms of appropriations from Congress. You know, we do also hear him criticizing Netanyahu and we hear back channels to how frustrated he is with the Israelis and expressing sympathy for the Palestinians. How do you see this, Marie, in terms of the Democratic Party politics. Is this a real problem for Joe Biden, the Israel's war in Gaza and the strong opposition to it and disaffection that many of his own party feel about it?
1: I mean, we could talk for three hours on this. I think a few things are true. The first is that Joe Biden deeply believes in being a strong friend to Israel. He is that generation, you know, those comments he made at the beginning of the war, his first trip to Israel, he met with Golda Meir. Right, he remembers a time when Israel felt much more insecure. He remembers a time when Israel was a very different place and the peace process was still a real thing. He deeply believes it. I think he is willing to take the political heat from parts of the party to maintain that relationship. At the same time, I think a lot of us, and it's so frustrating to me, Jerry. You know, one of my degrees in college is in Jewish studies. I feel like I'm very pro Israel, very supportive of Israel. And I get very frustrated when I see some of the far left talking about this conflict in a way that I find deeply unsettling. I think it's irresponsible and I think a lot of it can be quite uninformed. It has become like this left rallying cry where I think most folks probably don't have a good sense for what these things mean or what is at stake here. Setting that aside, look, is this an electoral issue? You can just tell by the fact that the campaign's been going to Michigan more to talk to Arab American voters about this. There is this. Fascinating statistic, though. I want to read this to you. So, we're very focused on Michigan voters when we talk about the Arab American community. Do you know how many Polish, Finnish, or Baltic voters live in Michigan?
0: A bit more than Arab Americans, right?
1: 900,000. So, Biden won Michigan by a little over 150,000 in 2020. I bring this up to say Are we hurting with Arab Americans and parts of the left in part because of the support for Israel? Absolutely. And I think they need to work on it for a bunch of reasons, both moral and electoral. If they run an ad in Michigan targeting these communities, playing Donald Trump on stage, saying, we're going to let Russia invade Poland, we're going to encourage him. My point in bringing this up is there are a lot of individual constituencies that make up electorates. Some of them care about foreign policy and different parts of it. And I think we need to focus on all of them. There are a bunch of voters in this country who care about us supporting Ukraine let's focus on them. Let's get that message to them. We need to work on the progressives in the Arab American community. And I think the Biden administration pushing for additional aid to the Palestinians, all of that helps. But this is an election that is much bigger than this. There are a lot of voters that we need to win over and the margins are very small. So any one of them can really play an important role.
0: But beyond the specific electoral geography, Is there a danger for Biden and for the Democrats that, again, this sort of pro-Palestinian sentiment among many, many, especially younger Democrats, that they could turn away from the Democratic Party? They could not come out and vote? Again, forget whether it's Michigan, but... Whether, and, and I forget whether they're Arab Americans, or just younger people who are pro-Palestinian. Right. Is that a risk, do you think, for them? I'm just trying to get a sense of how big a political concern the war and the Biden administration's approach to it could be for them in a general election.
1: It's a great question, Jerry. I think it's a medium-sized concern. I think it's, quite frankly, a bigger concern at the State Department and on the foreign policy front you know, I tell my friends at the various pro-Israel lobbies that the people they should worry about are not the squad. Like, you're never going to get Rashida Tlaib or Ilhan Omar to support Israel. Who I'm worried about for them are the moderate Democrats, who you are absolutely right. This is generational. A member of Congress who's 35 or whatever, you know, who's young, has very little memory of any Israel that was not led by Prime Minister Netanyahu, has very little personal ties to, they don't remember anything but a very far-right Israel, right, who was not engaged in a peace process. And the Palestinians, of course, haven't been as either. I'm not downplaying that. But it's those moderates that I worry about them. And a lot of this responsibility lies at the feet of Prime Minister Netanyahu. So electorally, I think this is a medium-sized problem. I think there are a bunch of other issues that are much more important, most of which is immigration, I would put at the top. I think this is a important issue, but I actually don't think this will be determinative. And I think a lot of Democrats will say to the left, look, if you're so mad about the support for Israel, you're going to vote for Donald Trump. You're not going to vote. You're going to vote for RFK Jr. That's absurd. How do you make that argument in a way that doesn't feel uh, like you're being a jerk? Right.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I want to talk about some of these other foreign policy issues briefly and their potential impact politically on the election. But since you raised immigration, let's talk about that. That clearly is a huge concern of voters and the Biden administration gets incredibly low marks for the handling of immigration. And let's be honest, uh, completely understandably, given what's happened now, there's been this slight wrinkle in the last couple of weeks where Republicans in Congress have declined to sign up to that package that would have included quite significant measures for the border. And, you know, Democrats are now trying to put the blame on Republicans. How do you see immigration playing out with these various sort of currents and cross currents? Well,
1: I think it's among the most important issues. You're right. I think Republicans made a huge strategic mistake when they refused to vote for that immigration bill, an immigration bill that was more conservative than any Democrat has ever signed up for, that really put Biden in a tough spot with the left, and he was willing to do because he believes it's important. Just look at the special election in New York 3. Tom Swasey won in part because he had a tough message on immigration, and he said, our party, the Democratic Party, has put on the table, you know, the toughest immigration bill in our lifetimes. And the Republicans said no, because they want to elect Donald Trump. And I think the Republicans really overreached here. They begged for this bill. They came to the negotiating table. So if Democrats can have a message, Jerry, that is tough, that recognizes it's a crisis, that talks about getting more resources to it and closing it down, Combined with the Republican complete negligence here, I think that this issue is changing a little bit.
0: Yeah, I mean, we talked briefly about that New York three special election. I mean, I take your point and you're absolutely right. Swatsy, who won, did run a rather clever campaign. That said, it was a Biden, I think, plus five or six district? I think I need to double check the numbers, but I'm pretty certain it was a Biden district. The turnout was very, very low, snowing, as you remember, like half the day. There was the whole George Santos kind of, you know, still thing hanging over it. I mean, can Democrats really take much encouragement from it?
1: I think when you put it in the context of all the other special elections we've seen, and the midterms, most recently. So the other thing that happened the day Tom Swasey won was that the Pennsylvania legislature switched back to Democrats because they won a seat in Bucks County, which is a real swing. You know, it's one of these bellwethers across the country. Since 2016, so setting aside 2016, every time Donald Trump has been at the top of the Republican ticket, Democrats have won or they have grossly overperformed what they should be doing given historical trends, given the economy, et cetera, et cetera. So in special elections in many places, they have won. So from one, I don't think you can take a lesson. But every time we're running campaigns like this, tailored to the district, pointing out the extremism on the Republican side. And by the way, every time abortion has been on the ballot, Democrats have won. So I think, look, I am very worried about this election. I am not pie in the sky. I'm not a Pollyanna here. But I do think that Tom Swasey was the latest in a long line of Democrats in special elections in the midterm, who overperformed where they should have been because they ran good campaigns and in large part because of the Republicans doing the opposite.
0: Again, as bad as Biden's numbers may be, and we can kind of all agree they are bad in terms of historical approval ratings, that has always been the line, isn't it, from Democrats? And it sounds like you still have a lot of confidence in it, which is that, look, you know, whatever Biden's problems and they're significant, it's kind of Trump and abortion, right? We've seen in, you know, elections, 2022 in particular, after the Dodds decision, or the midterm elections generally, but also some very specific ballot initiatives in some, interestingly, including in some very red states. Abortion is clearly seems to be an advantageous issue for Democrats right now. And secondly, Donald Trump, is that still that combination of Trump and abortion that beats whatever concerns people may have about Joe Biden?
1: I think it's that plus. So I'll start with that. On abortion, Democrats have gotten much smarter than we used to be in talking about it. And talking about it as freedom, right? Liberty. You deserve, as an individual, the liberty to make own decisions about your own body. And I think Republicans really overreached here. They really overreached. And they are losing on this issue in red places. Kentucky, Kansas, right? Ohio, places they shouldn't be losing. And so I think that that really resonates. And we know that suburban women voters are going to be a key component of who wins this election. I think people are deeply concerned about Donald Trump. I think there's a couple of specific polls that bear that out, one of which is the numbers of Republicans or independents who say under no circumstances will they vote for Trump if he's convicted of a crime. And it depends on the poll. It's anywhere between 10, 20. That's enough to lose you a national election, right? So I think it's that. But I also think the Biden team feels good about the economy. Now, I know the recent inflation numbers were a little bit of a step back. But in general, they feel like inflation is down. Wages are outpacing inflation unemployment is low, consumer confidence is skyrocketing. They feel like as these investments from some of their legislation, if the shovels start going into the ground, right, manufacturing jobs are coming back and you start to see some of these economic indicators, people feel it getting better. I think they want to run on that too. They feel pretty good about it is my sense.
0: Even though, as you say, I mean, inflation, we did have a disappointing number yesterday, but but more generally, the backdrop continues to be that even though inflation rate has come down, prices are still dramatically higher than they were when Donald Trump left office. And I agree with you about I've written about this, you know, economic growth is relatively strong. The unemployment rate is strong, but people still suffering from the sort of inflation sticker shock every time they go to the store and they just remember how prices have gone up in the last few years. It doesn't make them feel very good.
1: You know, you hit on the absolute most important thing anyone working in politics needs to think about. It's a feeling, right? A lot of elections are about vibes and people still feel that way in many cases I think it's starting to change. I think it's really hard to see some of this in polling. Well, to be
0: fair, it's not just about feelings. It is about the reality that prices are 20% plus higher than they were three years ago. Not
1: in every sector, to be clear.
0: The overall CPI is that's much how much higher than it was three years ago. And critically, of course, wages haven't kept pace. Now, sorry to interrupt you, uh, Marion, but you know it might be true now that we have seen, perhaps in the last few months, wages catching up. I'm just skeptical. It just, they're starting from a long way behind.
1: And there's a lot of reasons for that, that going back to vibes, people just don't buy the war in Ukraine, the hangover from COVID, global supply chains, all of those things are true. The fact that the U.S. actually was outpacing most other, you know, industrialized countries and doing better, like that doesn't give people a lot of comfort, right? So I think you and I are, we sort of agree on some of this. I think that the economic news is certainly better than it was. I think people still don't feel it, some of which is a feeling, some of which is real. And I do think that You know, this will be really interesting, Jerry. Donald Trump, because he's been sort of in a very narrow media environment for the last couple years, when he gets on the stump today and he talks, it feels different. And I love your thoughts on this. You know, it feels different than four or three or eight years ago. He's always had grievance, but it's much more grievance heavy. It's much less policy heavy. And he's so narrowly focused on the issues that his base cares about. I have a question, which is, when he has to expand his coalition, right, to get independence and to win, can he do that? Or is he so in his own myopic head now that he just, it doesn't work anymore? I don't know the answer, but I've been thinking about
0: it a lot. That's a very good question. Always worth reflecting when we talk about Trump, and especially Trump having an opinion poll lead, as he seems to have at the moment against Biden, that never actually won, obviously he beat Hillary Clinton in the key states, but he lost the popular vote then. Republicans had major setback in 2018 in the midterms. He did lose the 2020 election, despite what some of my listeners and readers may think. He did lose the 2020 election by a significant amount. And in 2022, again, Republicans did much less well. And since we're on Trump, and I just said what I wanted to conclude with, so it comes around very neatly, That is the question, particularly from your foreign policy perspective. There's been a lot of consternation in Europe and indeed the foreign policy community in this country about Trump's remarks last weekend, about recounting a story about, you know, how he told a European leader that he would tell Russia to go ahead and invade. You know, I think we're so kind of inured to Donald Trump saying extreme things that I wonder whether any of that stuff has any sort of a cut through anymore. Do you think there is a risk that the kind of wild and crazy Trump stuff that we have, again, have just got so used to that could still sway voters and persuade them again to turn out whatever their misgivings, turn out for Biden.
1: I mean, I certainly hope it does. No, of course you do. Which is a partisan statement, but also not. I think that would I feel this way if Nikki Haley was president? No. Right. So I think you are right. You are hitting the nail on the head of a real paradox in american politics right now that the almost the crazier things he says the less coverage it gets people just it's baked into him and i don't know what to do about that i think though that again campaigns have votes here right the biden campaign i can't believe donald trump on stage said that he would encourage russia to invade eastern europe they have to do a million things with that they have to get people to see and feel how a second donald trump term would be really damaging. And I do think that a lot of people voted for Biden in 2020 because they were sick of the chaos. They just wanted it to be quiet. And so I wonder if when Donald Trump is back on the news every day, the chaos is back, you know, they're seeing him on the presidential stage again, whether they'll be reminded and say, oh, I really don't want to do that again. I mean, the reality, Jerry, is that if either party nominated someone else than the current nominee, they would win by 20 points, I think. That's the reality we're living in. And so this is a fight to the finish. You know, this is going to be really close. And I do think that I have to believe that there are enough voters in the states that matter that will look at him, look at what he says about Europe and NATO and Russia and North Korea and women's choice and all of these issues and just say, I don't want to do that again. But the Biden team has to do their jobs. And that's the question.
0: All right, final question, which does again follow from all of this, which is the question of an actual or potential third-party candidate. And you just mentioned a few minutes ago, RFK Junior. Other memorable ad during the Super Bowl. (laughs) Um, How much is he worrying Democrats? I mean, maybe worries Republicans too. But clearly, the polling suggests he's—I don't know—anywhere between you could eight and fifteen percent, or whatever. That's a huge amount in terms of recent history. How much of a concern is it for Biden and for the Democrats, do you think? Well,
1: I think it should be an incredible concern, and I hope it is for them. And it seems like some of them are waking up to this now. You see the Democrats sort of looking at some legal avenues potentially to keep him off the ballot in places. Look, I think it should be a huge concern. We tend to think that he would take votes from Democrats. I'm not sure that conventional wisdom is 100% accurate. I think it's really hard to get polling on this stuff. I think polling is totally broken. But I think people should be very concerned. And I think that one of the messages has to be reaching these voters who are susceptible to the RFKs, the Cornell West, the sort of Jill Steins. How do you speak to them? And, you know, to our earlier conversation, some of that is about Israel and the Palestinians, but not all of it is. So look, I think it's incredibly concerning. I think people that run as third parties are incredibly selfish and they're vanity projects. And if they help elect Donald Trump, I hope they can sleep at night after that. But this is the way our system works. And Democrats have to make the case of what I just said. And hopefully we won't. I mean, <laughs> you know, we are in uncharted territory here, Jerry. But I, again. I think, again, I, <laughs> we live
0: we live just, in uncharted territory. that We're always, we? in, it. We're always yeah. in it.
1: But, you know, I yeah. think I would be curious to, to dig in a little more into who we actually think particularly RFK Jr. would take votes from. I think there's a chance he also takes from the right. So we'll see.
0: Well, I would love to dig further into that. Marie Half, thanks very much indeed for joining Free Expression.
1: I was happy to be here. Thanks.
0: Well, that's it for Free Expression this week. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back again next week when I'll have another conversation with someone about what's going on in the world. Thanks very much for joining us and goodbye.